So Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and uh, you'll be in good shape. Have you ever wanted to know the future? Uh, the town we used to live in had a fortune teller uh, who advertised her business out of her home. And so on the front, large front window of her home in vinyl lettering, it said, tarot card reading, past, present, furture. <laughs> she picked up the R that New Englanders drop and she put it in the word furture. Come get all your furture telling needs cared for at this psychic who struggles with spelling. Not only that, it, it was July and the Christmas lights were still on the edge of the house. Total hillbilly move and uh, not, a, not a psychic to be trusted, that's for sure. Uh, but have you ever thought that maybe it might be nice to know something about the future? And I don't mean in this sort of fake, nonsensical, tarot card hillbilly, psychic, garbage kind of way. I, I mean really, really know something about where your life is headed. Christians have often struggled with fears about the future. Our fears about the future come from suffering and hardship we face in the present. Many followers of Jesus throughout history have endured great personal suffering and have asked the question, is this worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is my faith in Him, the practice of that faith, is it really worth it considering what I've been through, what I'm going through, and the darkness that seems to lie ahead? When we ask that question, is it worth it, it's a future question we're asking. Is the pain I'm experiencing today, is it really temporary? Is it really going to be overcome in the end? Is it really worth holding on to Jesus? And so our personal suffering in particular, and then just our understanding of human suffering in general can lead us to believe less about Jesus. The question is power. The question is goodness. Perhaps even leads us to question the validity of a Savior who was executed in weakness and humiliation. So if only we possessed some sort of knowledge about the future what it will be like for God's people, that might help us in the present. Well, there's good news. We have a glimpse into that future in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. In this passage, we have a jaw-dropping glimpse. Just a glimpse, but it's a jaw-dropping nonetheless into the certain future for God's people. This glimpse into our certain future is called the transfiguration. And the story we're going to study this morning, the glory of Jesus is revealed and His divinity is affirmed in this incredible happening. It was originally witnessed just by three of Jesus' weak-faithed disciples. But today, it's witnessed by all of His weak-faithed disciples, all of us who struggle to hold on. So for disciples who don't understand, and disciples who doubt, 
For people who relate to God through a lens of fear and questioning, we have the gift of God's grace in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. My goal today, if you haven't picked up on it already, is to produce perseverance in you, to put strength into weak legs, to put iron in your bellies that you would endure through the hardships of this moment carried by a vision of a future and certain glory that's held in Jesus Christ. Today I want to show you four ways the transfiguration gives strength to struggling disciples. Four ways the transfiguration gives strength to struggling disciples. Now, this story, the transfiguration, it can be an intimidating story. It's difficult to make sense of what actually happens, and then it's perhaps a little more difficult to make sense of what it means for us today. But I think we understand this passage best if we don't treat it as a solo story, as if it's isolated from the things around it. If we see it as part of a larger teaching narrative, then it's easier to make sense of. So what we'll read here in just a moment in the Transfiguration actually belongs to this unit of teaching that goes back to the middle of chapter 8. In order to understand what happens in chapter 9, we have to remind ourselves of what happens when Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks, who do you say I am? And two weeks ago we studied this passage with Pastor Seth And you remember Peter's answer on behalf of the disciples. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, that's right. You've got the title right. Now, let me inform your understanding of the title. Here's what it means that I'm the Christ. I will be rejected. I will suffer. I will die. But three days later, I'll rise from the dead. Now, to you and I who are very Easter-minded, it's easy for us to understand what Jesus is getting at. But the disciples had no way of comprehending what Jesus means. They have a very concrete definition of Messiah or Christ, and it did not involve a Messiah who suffered or died. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. No, Jesus, we'll never let that happen. That's crazy talk. Don't say those things. And Jesus immediately rebukes Peter back. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And just to show how messed up your definition is of this proper title, let me explain what it even means just to be my follower. So Jesus brings the crowd together. And last week we heard Jesus say to the crowd, if anyone's going to come after me, anyone, they've got to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you think you can save your own life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. So there's this, there's the right title used by the disciples, but wrong definition, wrong understanding of what it means that Jesus is Messiah and what it means that they are his disciples. Jesus is correcting it. Do you think that at the end of chapter 8, once Jesus has had this great exchange between himself and the disciples, do you think the disciples then understood exactly what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah and for them to be his disciples? Not a chance! Not a chance! They are just as dull as they were before the conversation started. They do not have categories in their brains or in their theology for understanding a Messiah who suffers and disciples who suffer as they follow him. They don't understand it. So what does Jesus do? 
He's going to give them the grace of more understanding. That's what happens in chapter 9. That's what happens in the passage we study today. He's giving them the grace of more understanding. Look at what he says, chapter 9, verse 1. It's a part of that previous conversation, that following. If anyone's going to follow me, they're going to deny themselves, take up the cross, come after me. Look at what Jesus says to conclude that conversation. Chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, here's what's going to happen. Uh, Some of you will see the kingdom of God in all of its power before you die. You'll see it with your own eyes in this life. When will that happen? Well, Verse 2 tells us six days later they went up on the mountain. What Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 9, verse 1 is a headline. It's a precursor to the transfiguration. They will see the glory of God. They will see the power of God revealed when they go on the mountaintop with Jesus and see him transfigured. So that's what's happening here in this grand story. Jesus is helping the disciples understand better his identity and what it means to be his followers. So he's told them, you're going to see this power. And then our story picks up in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Follow along with me. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. So it's a loaded story. There's a lot going on here. And I think for our comprehension, it's best if we understand what's happening in this story to Jesus and what's happening in this story for the disciples. What's happening in this story to Jesus? Is this the point where Jesus becomes the Messiah? Absolutely not. Jesus has always been the Messiah. From the opening words of Mark's Gospel to the message that John the Baptist proclaimed as his forerunner, uh, to the confirmation at his baptism when God the Father speaks and affirms, this is my son. Even the demons whom Jesus is in warfare with recognize him as the son of God. And then back in chapter 8, 
when Peter identifies Jesus correctly as the Christ, he doesn't do it with a future tense. He says, you are the Christ. So Jesus has always been the Messiah. This is not where Jesus gets promoted or he elevates to the next level of Godhood. This is not Jesus becoming divine. This is Jesus revealing his divinity. That's what this is for the disciples. For the disciples, the transfiguration confirms something so important that those who follow Jesus and suffer for him will not do so in vain. It answers the, is this worth it question? Why why am I going through this? Why am I going to endure this hardship? Why don't I just cash it in and do my own thing? Because those who follow Jesus and suffer for him don't do so in vain. This is the confirmation of Jesus' promise in chapter 8, verse 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. That's what's happening in the transfiguration. So I want to show you how this incredible scene gives strength to disciples who don't understand, to disciples who react in fear, to disciples who carry doubt, to disciples who are crushed by the events of life. How can I sit down, look at what happens in this story, and walk away with renewed faith and strength from Jesus Christ? Four ways this story gives us strength. First of all, it affirms the coming glory of Jesus. The transfiguration affirms the coming glory or the future glory of Jesus in verses 2 and 3. So in verse 2, Mark gives us the play-by-play of the mountain that here we are six days after that previous conversation. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, also known as the inner circle, and they go up on this unnamed mountain and have this incredible experience. Jesus is transformed in front of their eyes. We're told that his clothes become whiter than any human could make a fabric white. It's just, they're, they're beaming. And the Greek word here for transfiguration is the word we use for metamorphosis. So here's Jesus being transformed in a way, but not changed into something different, rather revealing who he really is. Are you ready for the worst illustration in the history of preaching? You're in luck. Here you go. Remember the movie Cocoon? (laughs) There you go. When people ask, how relevant is your church? Say, we got a Cocoon reference on Sunday. They'll be blown away. A movie called Cocoon is about some aliens that are disguised as humans, and they come in peace. But at this one point in the movie, Alien Brian Dennehy is going to reveal his alienness to human Steve Gutenberg. And he does so by pulling down on his eyelid and a little bit of his alien light shoots out of his eyeball, right? He's revealing. Are you with me so far? You okay now? Cocoon! This happens. This is, in small part, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' true identity is revealed. He doesn't assume an identity. He reveals his identity. He is God with us. And the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration just get a small glimpse, just a little bit. They don't see all of his glory unleashed. They just see a little bit of it. Jesus is transfigured right there in 
front of them. And this shining glory is a sign of his true identity. He is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus the Son of God. He isn't merely a miracle worker or a teacher. He is very God and his glory confirms this. So what should the disciples think in the days after this when they see Jesus arrested and brutalized and hanging on the cross? Should they think to themselves, this is the end. It's all over. The mission's failed. We've wasted our time. We've put ourselves in danger for nothing. Is that what they should think? No. They should remember that the one hanging on the cross is the Son of God, the King of glory, whose glory is coming and will never be diminished. What should we followers of Jesus today think about when suffering and sorrow come our way? The same. I belong to God the Son. I belong to the King of glory. This day is hard, but it isn't the last day. There is eternal glory to come, and brothers and sisters, you can take that promise to the pit with you. He will not let you down. There's strength to be found here when we see the glory of Christ revealed And we know it is a glory that is to come and that will reign forever and ever. The Mount of Transfiguration is a mountain of assurance. It is a mountain of grace for disciples who doubt and suffer. It affirms that there's glory to come. There's a second way the Transfiguration gives strength to weary disciples. Second, it affirms that Jesus is our deliverer. It affirms that Jesus is our deliverer in verse Mark tells us that in verse 4, a couple of people, important people, appear on the mountain with Jesus. There appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah and Moses have long been gone from this planet. But here in this incredible moment, they show up by Jesus and they speak with him. And what's the meaning of their appearance? It's tough to say. Mark doesn't give us a lot of commentary. And sometimes we might get distracted by answering the unknowns or trying to answer those unknowns. But I think we can just deal with what we have in front of us and it'll be sufficient. Here's what I think is the importance of Moses and Elijah in this passage. Two things. First, they are both men who experienced mountaintop theophanies or encounters with God, just like Jesus is encountering on this day. They're also both men who were faithful servants who suffered because of their obedience. They were rejected by the people of God and they were vindicated by God. That's the same trajectory Jesus is on as well. Their suffering came before their vindication. That's how it will be for Jesus also. So they provide continuity for the path Jesus is going to take to the cross. In Moses and Elijah, we see tiny forerunners of what Jesus will do in the extreme. Glory is coming, but first he's going to go to the cross. There's a second reason why I think Moses and Elijah are important here. It's it's because in Jewish thought and theology, these two figures are important when it comes to end times thinking. Write down Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Malachi 4 4 through 6. The prophet Malachi, long after Moses and Elijah are dead, long before Jesus is born, God speaks through Malachi the prophet and names both Moses and Elijah in this prophecy. And he says that before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, Elijah will return. 
And so in this end times thinking, there's a, a, an order to things. There's a timeline, so to speak. Elijah returns, and then the Messiah arrives. And the arrival of the Messiah is telling us that the day of deliverance is here. The great day of redemption is happening. When the Messiah comes, salvation comes with him. So when we see Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountain, Moses is the first deliverer of God's people. Elijah is the last bookend on that whole scene, and then we would expect the Messiah to come next, and that's what we have in Jesus. In Jesus, we have our deliverance. The time is fulfilled. The time of salvation has come. How does Jesus deliver? With the chariot? and an army, and power untold, and the wealth of nations, and the glory of the populations? No. He delivers through death. Lays down his life. He died on the cross. And that death has spiritual ramifications for us. The sinless Son of God. God in the flesh, whose glory is revealed on this mountaintop in miniature. That very God will die in our place for our sin. He's the one we've sinned against, but the way He delivers is by eating the wrath our sin requires so that you and I could be gifted the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He loves you this much. He will go all the way to the cross for you in all of your sin and all of your rebellion. Deliverance day has come. One writer described perfectly the parallels between the Mount of Transfiguration and the cross. There's these incredible parallels. On the mountain of Transfiguration, the glory of Jesus is revealed in a private epiphany, but on the cross, he suffers as a public spectacle. On the mountain, Jesus is joined by two prophets of old. On the cross, he's joined by two thieves. On the mountain, Jesus' clothes shine in His glory. But on the cross, His clothes are taken from Him, increasing His humiliation. On the mountain, three male disciples view His glory at close range. On the cross, three female disciples view His suffering from a distance. And on the mountain, a divine voice announces that Jesus is the Son of God. On the cross, a Roman centurion, one of His executioners, it claims him to be the Son of God after his death. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration points us to Calvary. Our deliverance from sin and death comes from trusting in the one who laid down his life and three days later rose again. Every promise in him is true. He is our Savior and our Deliverer. Is he your Deliverer? Have you trusted him? Here we find strength for struggling disciples. The transfiguration gives strength because it affirms the glory of Jesus, because it affirms His role as our deliverer. Here's the third way it gives us strength. It validates the words of Jesus. The transfiguration validates the words of Jesus in verses 5 through 8. Peter has the spiritual gift of getting it wrong all the time. He does so here, verses 5 and 6. 
Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And verse 6 is a brilliant piece of commentary on Mark's part. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter thinks, oh, there's silence. I should fill it with words. I don't know what I'm saying. Just words are coming out. Jesus, we should build three shelters. And then, as if we needed clarification, he identifies who the shelters would be for. Oh, they would be for you, Jesus, and Moses, and Elijah. That's who the three shelters would be for. Peter, just he sees things through such a human lens. He speaks out of fear. Right? Here he is in the presence of undeniable divinity, but he still sees the whole situation through a human perspective. Peter's bumbling voice is then silenced by the voice of God that comes from a cloud. When the voice in the cloud speaks, it says this, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. Peter speaks in error and finiteness and weakness. He is silenced by the voice that speaks the truth of all creation. The voice that comes from the cloud is a higher authority than Elijah or Moses. The voice confirms what Peter had confessed earlier. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When the Father speaks and tells the disciples to listen to the Son, what do you think it is that they're supposed to listen to Him? What are they supposed to hear Him say? What are they supposed to obey? Well, it it would be good to just say in general, anything Jesus says He should be listened to and obeyed. That's true. But I think in this instance, we can be even a little more specific. What should they listen to Jesus about? Do you remember what Jesus talked about just prior to going up the mountain? He talked about the necessity of the Messiah's suffering and death and his resurrection three days later. And do you know what Jesus will speak about again as soon as he comes down from the mountain? He will talk about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection three days later. So in other words, what Jesus has to say about salvation is trustworthy and true. If we want to know what it is to be right with God, to know forgiveness, to understand the trajectory of history, what eternity really looks like, the expert on these things is the one who put it in place and made salvation possible at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the one you have to listen to. And so often I've had conversations with sweet people who are trying to understand matters of faith, wrestling with spiritual matters. And so often their conclusions come just in things they've thought. Don't you think dot, dot, dot is how their sentences would go. But our sentences don't need to begin with don't you think. They need to begin with Jesus said. And so if if you are on that spiritual journey today, my best advice to you is you have to get yourself in the way of the words of Jesus. You have to hear what Jesus has to say. Sit down with the Bible open and look at the words of Jesus as they pertain to salvation. Hear what God's Word says. And if you're already a believer, guess what? You still 
must listen to Jesus. Listen whenever he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will be saved. Listen when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen when he says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. Listen when he says, behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is coming with me. You've got to listen to him. There's strength for weak disciples, strength for those crushed by doubt and fear when we hear and we believe the words of Jesus. The transfiguration is strength because it affirms his glory, affirms his deliverance work. It affirms the authority of his word. Finally, fourth source of strength, it affirms the cross. In verses 9 through 13, the transfiguration affirms the cross. So if you were to split the action up, you could easily split this story into two sections. Uh, Verses 2 through 8 occur on the mountain. That's the transfiguration event. Verses 9 through 13 happen on the way down the mountain. So two really easy sections uh, as ways of understanding this story. And so in verse 9, they're coming down the mountain. Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen until after I've risen from the dead. And as far as we know, this is the only place in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells someone to be quiet and they obey. They indeed keep quiet until after uh, Christ's resurrection. But that phrase, risen from the dead, gives them trouble. They, They can't make sense of it. Verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. This confusion, this lack of understanding is what fuels the next question about Elijah. They ask a question that makes sense to them, but needs a little help for us to get traction with. Verse 11, they asked him, why do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So the teaching of the religious professionals was that Elijah would come, remember this timeline, Elijah would come, and then the Messiah would show up, and he would launch an earthly kingdom of messianic splendor. In short, the doctrine was this sense of Jewish triumphalism. Elijah comes, boom, Messiah next, and it's glory time for God's people in the here and now. Putting down Rome and all of our earthly enemies and will reign supreme forever. So a dead Messiah doesn't jive with their theology. When they ask, doesn't Elijah come first, they're asking, Elijah's going to come, right? There's going to be glory, there's going to be power, and then the Messiah's going to come in the same. So Jesus answers them and again has to drill into their heads the necessity of suffering for the one who will redeem God's people. So Jesus tells them, yeah, indeed, Elijah does come first and he has come first. What does he mean there? What does he mean that Elijah has come? That's not in our story here. Well, this is where Matthew gives us some good interpretation. In his telling of the transfiguration, at this point, Matthew 17, verse 13, he tells us the disciples knew when Jesus talked about Elijah, he was referencing John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this symbolic, this type of Elijah who comes. And do you remember what happened to John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who had this esteemed calling, the last of the prophets? Remember what happened to him? He's arrested and beheaded at the whims of a sicko, low-life politician. 
they have done to him everything they wished. So, in essence, Jesus is saying, if this is the way things went for the forerunner of the Messiah, how do you think it's going to go for the Messiah? This suffering is inescapable. It is a necessity. It is by the Father's divine plan and sovereignty. Suffering comes before glory. Good Friday before Easter Sunday. The cross before the empty tomb. This has tremendous implications for our salvation. It has incredible implications for our discipleship. Uh, The date was Monday, April 2nd, 2007. I was sitting in my office at my church. Um, The Sunday before had been Palm Sunday. Sunday coming up is Easter Sunday. And so we're busy, busy at work. And I heard a commotion down the hall from my office. And one of my secretaries began to yell the name Janet over and over. Janet was our children's minister, uh, full of life, a friend to everyone, a precious woman. Uh, 50 years old, married, mother of three kids, and on the Monday before Easter, she died of a massive heart attack in her office. The night before Janet died, she sent me an email around 10.30. And the subject of her email was what I learned through Lent. We had observed Lent as a church. We had, we had made it work for us for some spiritual goals. And so we emphasized spiritual disciplines and we emphasized fasting that matters. And uh, we put a lot of effort into really committing ourselves to a season of repentance and confession and spiritual growth. And so this, this was Janet's email to me the night before she died. She said, just thought I'd share with you what God taught me through Lent. I'm amazed how quickly the time went by and how much I saw and learned, but primarily something so elementary, it seems dumb, and of course, it's not as if I didn't know it, but this time I really experienced it. Anyways, I learned there is no resurrection, no new life without death. Profound, huh? You said in one sermon, Easter is coming, but first there is Friday. First there is death. I'm such a want-it-now person. Like, I want to be thin, all caps. But I don't want to get thin because that involves diet and exercise, nasty little words. So it is in my Christian walk. I want to be close to God, all caps. To be seeing His hand in everything, every day. To have a faith that really sustains. But a lot of the time, I don't want the work. Not just the church and praying and reading the Word work, but giving up some frivolous thing or not watching something or or not eating something or whatever. I want the relationship without the work. And I learned during Lent how much value there is in the work, the extended times in the Word and in prayer, the letting go of some things that are temporal to build things that are eternal. How much sweeter the fellowship is when I'm seeking forgiveness daily, when I'm seeking to look more like my Father daily, And though the process is not always fun, the rewards are incredible. I can honestly say without any reservation that in this season, Jesus has changed me. That from that Ash Wednesday service until now, Palm Sunday, God has done a work. And in many areas, it's been painful, and it still is, but there is much joy. Easter is coming, and I'm excited. Just thought I'd share that. Happy Palm Sunday.
Janet. Suffering comes before glory. Good Friday before Easter Sunday. The cross before the empty tomb. So maybe there is purpose in the hardship you're facing. Maybe Jesus has some design for you in this trial. Something he's working and shaping and forming in you that is inescapable apart from these hard steps. Do you think you could pray this way? Do you think you could pray, Jesus, don't remove this suffering prematurely. Don't let up until I have embraced you fully and my faith is completely refined. Turn up the fires. Remove every bit of dross. Make me fully yours. Thank you for the cross that saved me and this cross I carry. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the cross is affirmed as the path for our salvation in the journey towards our shared glory with Christ. Do you get a sense now of how you on your darkest day could sit down with Mark chapter 9 and in your darkness find glory, light that gives you strength? Because in this story, we see affirmation of Christ's future glory. We're reminded that he's our deliverer. We listen to his life-giving words and we embrace the cross. So I want you to think about what you've seen today. This whole event, this whole story, it is a gift of grace. It doesn't have to happen. It isn't required. It is for the benefit of disciples who struggle, who operate in fear. And here's what God has shown you to help you forward. You have seen Jesus transfigured, bathed in divine glory, joined by two heroes of the faith and affirmed by the very voice of God. All of this to help you in your unbelief. All of this to get you to stop with the logic of Peter and instead to listen and believe. So don't give up, brothers and sisters. Don't quit. You belong to the King of glory. You belong to the one Elijah and Moses longed for. You belong to the one whose words are true. You belong to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Find your strength in Him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank You for taking us to the mountain with You today. Thank you for lifting us for a moment out of the valley and giving us a vision of what is and what is to come. And I'm so glad that we experience that mountain on this side of the cross. Because what was promised and affirmed to the three weak disciples on that day, we have seen fulfilled and in an unbelievable way. Because you went to the cross. You didn't stop. You set your face like flint. You endured the blows of your executioners and you bore our sin all the way. Oh, thank you for taking us to the mountain today because, God, we, we have to see this. And I pray strength for my brothers and sisters from this passage. 
We would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you in this way. And Lord, for sure, not every day is hard, not every day is brutal, but some days are, some seasons are more than we can handle. And God, for our good days and our bad days, we need to carry this vision with us. Would you, Father God, please, would you awaken faith this morning in the hearts of someone in here, someone who's wrestled with faith, who has lived by their own conclusions rather than the very words of Christ. Let them hear what he has said about salvation. See what he has done for their salvation and believe it. Lean on it. Trust in it entirely. Thank you for the strength you give us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.